Welcome to this episode of By The Way. I'm Matt Rothy, pastor at The Way Church. Today, we are joined by my friend, Jonathan Shores. Jonathan is the executive director of G3 Community Service. Additionally, Jonathan happens to be one of the kindest, most compassionate, and strongest Christian men I know, and someone I'm grateful to do gospel ministry with. Jonathan, thanks for being here, man. If you would tell us maybe something about where you're from or anything else you'd like our listeners to know about you. Yeah, I'm the executive director at G3 Community Services. Uh, we're up in Stafford, Virginia, and we we look to serve the community in Fredericksburg, Stafford, and Spotsy area. I'm originally from Illinois. I was born in Illinois, adopted by two wonderful Christian parents. And then because uh, my adopted dad was in the Navy, we moved all over the place until we finally settled in Maryland. And I moved here in Virginia, probably somewhere around 2007, 2008. So I've been here a while. I've been um, into the community and been able to kind of act on some of those passions. I'm originally Puerto Rican, uh, native Puerto Rican, which is called Taino. So I'll say Taino T, which means good day to everybody. Right on. And he didn't even mention that uh, the dude knows how to sing and play the guitar <laughs> and might be one of my favorite musicians uh, to listen go. to. That's it. I don't know how I'm to live up to this. Right. Well, additionally, we have the privilege to be here with Vernon Green Jr. Vernon is a retired Army Chief Warrant Officer. He's the founder and CEO of G-Cube Enterprise, a government contracting IT and cybersecurity business here in Stafford, Virginia. It's currently the fifth fastest growing company in Virginia and the first fastest growing tech company here. As a way to live out his Christian faith and his passion for serving God and people, Vernon has also founded G3 Community Services, which is a nonprofit that provides services and support to many throughout our community. Vernon, I'm very, very grateful to be here with you. Uh, if you would, please tell us where you're from and anything else you'd like our listeners to know about what you do. Again, thank you so much for the uh, introduction. I'm very humbled and grateful to be a part of this. I am, as you said, retired Army, uh, served 20 years, five months and 18 days. Not that I was counting, but um, I've done four deployments to Iraq, uh, spent two years in Korea, spent some time in Saudi and a few other places. So um, I've had a chance to travel the world and have a few experiences uh, upon retirement, just started GQ because I wanted to have an environment where I could control the culture and contribute to the values of an organization that was community-based, people-based, and impactful. So G3 Community Services came along, uh, honestly, because my daughter came home from school one day and she said, Daddy, I said, how was your day? And she said, Daddy, the boys are bad in school and we didn't get to finish our work and the teacher ran out crying. And I said, oh, and she says, Daddy, can you come to school and fix it? Because all girls think their dads are supermen and, and, and they can fix anything. So next morning we got up, we went down to the school, spoke to the teacher. I asked the teacher if I can address her class. And at the time I was um, still in uniform. And I told the kids that if you are disrespectful here, the teacher will call me and I will come back down here and you will deal with me personally. And the teacher next door said, hey, can you come do that over here too? So... I started walking out to my class, out of, out to my car, and then my phone rang, and it was the principal. And they said, can you come back in here? We want you to start a program right away. And that was the birthplace of EYM, our first program for our nonprofit. Well, how about that for a birth story? <laughs> That's awesome. Gentlemen, I want to thank you both for being here. The reason that I reached out to you men uh, to have this conversation was this. Throughout my adult life and in the days immediately following the murder of George Floyd uh, while in police custody, I thought I understood racism in America. 
understood racism is wrong. It is a sin that is inconsistent with the love of Christ, which compels us to love others. And tragically, I understood it as a thing that continues to be a persistent problem in our country. I'll admit humbly, though, that beginning now, uh, I've just started to realize how little I know about this, about racism, about injustice in the United States. A decisive moment for that Uh, which really opened my heart and my ears to my lack of understanding was reading the local newspaper, Vernon, and reading about you, someone whom I've met, someone whom I've grown to know and admire. And I read about you speaking and leading some peaceful protests here. And that was eye-opening for me. Uh, Reading the message you and other shares helped me recognize uh, the complex issues of race relations in this country are something that I do not fully understand. And I know I'm not alone in that. To be honest, sir, um, we had a youth forum last Friday. We coordinated an event where the the youth got to come out and and communicate and share their message uh, to all the leadership of Stafford. We had board of supervisor members, school board members, the sheriff showed up, the superintendent was there, and the county commissioner was there. But one of the things that I thought was enlightening for me was uh, the county commissioner, Scott Majowski. Um, As we were doing our closing remarks, Scott shared a story, which I hope he doesn't mind me sharing now, but he, he shared a story and he said, I grew up right here in Stafford. He said, I was a knucklehead and I had many interactions with the police. He said, but it took to this very moment for me to understand listening to these youth. He said, every single time I interacted with the police, I never feared for my life. I never feared for my life. And every message that was communicated from those youth was about fear. It was about how they're handling and managing fear every single day, getting on the school bus, going into school. If a, if a police officer siren comes on, they tense up like they just don't know what's going to happen. That's the true constant pressure that Black people and minorities live under every single day. Highlighting that fear is something I'm, I'm really grateful that so many others are courageous to do. I'm thankful that you brought it up um, because this is perhaps, uh, yeah, reflective of my heart. Here's where my fears have been, just fears to confront inner biases, right? Fears to talk about race with someone of a different racial background. Maybe I'm going to say something uh, that comes out insensitive. Maybe I'm going to say something wrong. Fear that maybe what I say is seeming too political, to other people. And so we just don't talk about it. And what what remains is racism, racism and ignorance about race. And I've been guilty of it, but I want to learn. And that's the reason for this conversation. It's time to start having those conversations about race that are marked with humility, that are marked with empathy uh, so that we can learn and understand what the black men and women in our community are feeling so we can stand with them and walk with them into the future for what I pray is, is change. You, you you touch on one of the biggest factors. Um, I will start with the positive, and that is I do feel like this time is different than the previous uh, civil rights movements. It's it's different than any anything that I have uh, read about or or learned about. And, and that difference is, and um, I, I hope I can just be straight, it's that white people are no longer turning a blind eye. It's that they truly are looking and seeing that, hey, there is something wrong. Because in the past, because it didn't affect so many, um, it was easy for them to just look the other way. But now we've really come to a place where 
it's either you acknowledge that there's a problem or you're a part of the problem. And 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 more people are starting to not want to be ignorant or or uninformed. So they're starting to look into things. They're starting to look at things from a critical standpoint. They're starting not to just turn their head in the other direction. And that education is truly what I believe is the difference in this protest. It's not the black people. Black people have been fighting and saying the same thing forever. We've been trying to get things changed forever. It's the fact that now there are white people that are paying attention, that are trying to make a difference that makes this effort feel different. There is a a systemic element to it. There's a generational phenomenon in which when you were born kind of dictates your mentality about how things always were and how things have never been. And if you were born, you know, recently within the last generation or two, you don't have an understanding about what people fought for before you existed. And that can also, especially in youth, because I've learned this from experience also, it can lead you to a point where you're, you feel like you're alone. You feel like this is the first time this fight has ever been fought or this stance has ever been taken. And it isn't. And we have moved away from where we were able to have debate and intelligent conversation. And Booker T. Washington has a bunch of great quotes where he was talking and explaining, this is the black side of racism in America. Now, what's your white understanding of racism in America? And they were able to have these conversations. Some people don't know that those conversations ever existed. Mm-hmm. And when you forget history, you're doomed to repeat, repeat it. it. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. So you don't know that these things... Uh, are happening or where you are in history exactly. And and it's funny that you, when you talk about history, I think that that is another critical um, element. You know, they say that um, history is written by the winner. Um, I've always heard that. So if the winner is telling the story, it's always going to be skewed from the winner's perspective, right? So when you talk about the the Boston Tea Party, hey, it was a Boston Tea Party. No, it was a revolt. It was a revolution against the country. But because the people writing history was the winning side. But when you talk about a civil rights protest, when you talk about some of the issues that black people have experienced, it's always been portrayed as a riot. It's been portrayed as a negative, as a revolution, and it has this negative connotation to it. But whenever you talk about the Boston Tea Party, it has this we were liberating and we were, it has this different appeal to it. So if you look at history and you start to understand that as soon as slavery was abolished, you had a sense of free labor that was no longer available. So the whole South was based on labor that was free. The whole economy was set up this way. So by freeing the slaves, you just crushed the entire economy of the South. So then the 13th Amendment comes along and it says very clearly in it that, you know, all men are created equal except for criminals. So now what you're saying is, is if I can criminalize black people, then I can still bring that same free labor back to do whatever I need to do. So when you start looking at the historical aspect of it, you start to see that within government, There have been systematic efforts and processes to criminalize certain things to keep black people in a place of the free labor and all of the the needs of, forgive me, white America. 
business, corporations. Mm -hmm. So people don't truly understand what we mean by systemic racism. It is ingrained in our policies. It's ingrained in a lot of the things we do. For example, if you look at um, the war on drugs, the war on drugs was a big effort between several of the presidents. But you can also look and see where if a sophisticated person, white person, had cocaine, the penalty was one thing. But if a black person had crack, which is the same makeup, their punishments were much more severe. And so you'll see that within black communities, we didn't make crack and we definitely didn't ship it there. It, it ended up there, but it turned into a war on drugs to criminalize an entire people. And then one of the things that we're criticized about, and I take this very personally as a father, is that, nope, the reason why you guys are bad is because the absence of your black men and, and, and fathers, black fathers aren't doing their job. It's hard to be a black father when you're locked up in jail. It's hard to be a black father when there's a, 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 an X on your back targeting you to cause the separation, which leaves an entire generation of uninformed, unprotected black people. Minorities. I, I do want to keep saying minorities because it's not just black. It, it affects us tremendously, but it, it's the same story. So when you look at our prison system and you look at how what the percentage of black people make up in the United States versus the number of uh, black prisoners within the, the prison system, it's completely skewed. It makes no sense unless there is a targeted effort, a systemic plan to go that way. Let me ask about that. Thank you guys for bringing that up. And especially in the context of history in the way you did, because I think shamefully there has been a, another history, a history of the Christian church, Christians, and specifically white people in those areas who are being silent or late to the party about issues of race. And even now when I read online or hear online or hear conversations that I'm having, uh, some of the things, Vernon, that you brought up get mentioned. Talks about protests happen and it, they move it immediately to, let's mention the looting that's happening. Mm -hmm. um, people talk about police brutality or uh, white on black crime and they immediately ask, well, what about black on black crime? Mm -hmm. Or the central message, Black Lives Matter is often heard the response from that of, well, all lives matter. So what that does is dismiss the 400 year of history of racial trauma and oppression, which still is a problem, hurts and holds back blacks and minorities in the country. So what would you say to your white neighbors to help anyone listening understand so systemic nature? When of the Boston bombing happened and Boston came out with Boston Strong, we didn't go out and say, well, New York is strong. Well, Chicago's strong. Wherever you at, place else is strong. You didn't do it because it was a cry from a people for protection, for help, for unity. In Las Vegas, when the shootings happened and they came out with, um, I can't remember what theirs was. It wasn't Las Vegas strong, but it was Las Vegas something. You didn't hear other cities come and say, no, everybody is is strong. Everybody. You didn't because it's a cry from people. But when black people say black lives matter, it's not to exclude other people. It's not to exclude everybody else. It's because we're coming from a place of hurt and we're trying to fix an issue with with us. But as soon as we say Black Lives Matter, we're returned with, well, all lives matter. It, that that That's not right. And, it, and, and when you present it in a way 
it's like, here's another example. I read this one online the other day. If my wife comes to me and says, I love you, do you love me? And I return it with, yeah, I love everybody. That's not going to go so well, right? And, and, and so it's like, if, if we say Black Lives Matter, we're not trying to put our lives above everybody. We're just trying to get equal footing, equal grounds. Our lives are being taken and our lives are being locked up or we're moving to death. And nobody seems to see, everyone wants to look at it and say, well, it's it's your fault. It's your environment. You, it, it's black people, black on black crime, all these things. But what they don't want to acknowledge is what got us here. What got us here is uh, problems like redlining, where black people could not get loans, but white people went on and moved up. It, it, things like our educational system, which is based on taxes. And if you're in low income areas, those taxes aren't good. So you don't get good teachers in those areas. There's all these systematic things that contribute to where we are. And we and, and what happens is white America, corporate America or legislative America looks and says, you guys have a problem. Let us fix you. No, you have a problem and we are we are suffering from the problem that has come from the systemic issues that continue to affect us. And to bring that um, kind of full circle where we talked historically, a big difference now is what Vernon said, white people are starting to take notice and take action and stand with people because that generational phenomenon was true for them. They don't know how or why not everybody knows how or why those systems are set in place, but they are. And so if we choose to, again, ignore history, we're, we're going to be willfully ignorant to these things. And so the recent events have just given an opportunity for people of all races. I don't care if you're white, brown, or black. You're now open to something. You're now open to your own responsibility to have that knowledge and to understand, have that understanding. And if you don't know, then what you do is you sit around a table and you, and you talk about it mm -hmm. and you get some, you know, you, we just don't know everything and we don't know how everything has been. So without that context, then you get people who say, well, all lives matter. All lives do matter 100%. And I, I don't know anybody who would disagree with that. But again, when there's a certain people group or a city or whatever it is that is crying out for help, you either stand with them or you stay silent, which is to say you do the opposite. You're either standing with them or you're not. And we are in a spot in history, so we don't know what can happen in the future. We can only base off what's going on in the past and what's happened in the past. And so in the future, when there is another movement, when there is a civil rights movement, when there, we, we know that we can say native lives matter, white lives matter, police lives matter, whatever it is, but it's the same thing. It's the same exact thing. If you come and you stand with black people during Black Lives Matter because you should, because all lives do matter and black lives are all lives, then you can expect that to be reciprocated when the next movement comes along, when the next revolution comes along, whatever it might be. Can I ask you, man, a personal question? Is it, is it fair to say that what you've been feeling with this, the pain, the frustration, uh, it's from way more than recent events. It's from a lifetime of experiencing this. In the article, I said that George Floyd, no disrespect to George Floyd, but he's just the straw that broke the camel's back. Like he is like the last straw. Like we've been experiencing this forever. And, and when you look at the um, Martins, when you look at all the other mm -hmm. situations, and um, it, it seemed like... 
because there's no accountability and officers are getting off and there's no um there's no uh value to the the lives that are taken at least that's what people getting getting away with murder shows to me that there's just no value there and and then the fact that even in how things are happening right now with protests and I'm not talking about the riots I do not support um, looting and things like that. I, I, I don't support that. But what I am saying is where there are peaceful protests, protests are designed to be disruptive and, and create discomfort for uh, people to bring attention to the issues. So if they're marching in the streets and the streets are blocked, it's supposed to cause disruption. But what's happening is, and, and this is my opinion, the way that it's being handled by some police forces across the nation is exactly emphasizing the reason why we're protesting. Because what you're doing is you're gassing and, and using a excessive force against a people that are already telling you that there's a problem with excessive force. You're demonstrating the very thing that we're trying to convey. And that is, if they're out there peaceful protesting, even if they're marching in the street, whatever, the worst thing that's going to happen is, okay, we're going to slow down traffic. Someone's going to be late going home. I'm, I'm sorry about that. But the attention that we're trying to bring to this is to bring leaders to the table so that we can come up with real solutions. And I think the sooner leaders realize that, look, we need to figure out how to hear the protesters, how to listen to what they're saying, and how to take that information and turn it into policy and legislation, then you'll start to see things start to calm down. Mm -hmm. You brought up the example that, unfortunately, everyone in America has seen the excessive force that's often being used. Uh, would you be willing to share a personal experience that you ha may have seen or experienced yourself uh, growing up, serving in the military, or living in Stafford of racism personally or systemically? Absolutely. Um, two come to mind really quickly. One, I was home on leave. Um, I was in New York, but I was home on leave and I was in a car with my wife and my daughter. I was pulled over. I, I asked why. They pulled me out of the car. They put me on the hood of the car in front of my family. And I, I didn't even know why. It wasn't communicated why. And so, you know, black people are taught at a very young age, you know, be careful. Don't come across threatening. Don't say anything. Uh, watch how you move your hands. So I, I tried to do all those things because that's what we're taught. And if I may throw this in there, but then I've seen how some white people have reacted to cops and basically you know, been completely disrespectful or yelling at them and screaming at them. And they're not seen as a threat. You had the Second Amendment rally where people showed up with guns, big guns, and they're all over the place with guns. Not one incident, not any pressure, no, no condemnation, no nothing. We have kids showing up and they're being they're being gassed. They don't have weapons. They're kids. What? I just don't think we're handling the things the right way. All right. And then here in Stafford, you know, I got here and um, a lot of the racism that I believe happens here in Stafford is when white people will uh, speak to me and everything's fine and the communication goes a certain kind of way and there are um, 
allowances, one for my blackness and two for their communication or their leadership. But the part that gets me is when that same person goes back and talks about that conversation, when they think they're in a safe place, when they think that there's no one around. Um, Those are the times when I start to hear exactly what they do think about me and exactly how they do interpret me and my blackness or my business or so forth and so on, where it's been communicated right here, even recently, aren't you scared to protest with them? What does that mean? What them? Who's them? If my black skin is the thing that people are scared of, I can't take that off. I can't stop that. That's who I am. So there has to be a change in mindset that is not that I'm threatening because I'm black. I'm threatening because of something else, some action, some behavior, some something else. But there's so many times when that's where it starts and ends. A black male suspect. That's it. Yeah, I can tell you for me, it's been much more than the recent events that cause pain and frustration. I was thrown in the back of a cop car at 12 or 13, told that I would go to jail if I didn't admit to some vandalism that I didn't do. I was pulled over on 95, completely empty, about 11 o'clock at night as a 17 or 18-year-old for no reason and kind of almost chased off the, I don't want to sound too dramatic, but almost chased off of the exit and then pulled over um, with never with an explanation as to why just told, don't do anything stupid and left it at that. So in my youth and my obstinance and spite, I did not want to be supportive of authority, did not want to be supportive of police force, did not want to vote in elections, did not want to. And then, and then as a, with a little bit of a chip on your shoulder as a native person, you think, well, natives and, and government relations have never really gone in the way that they were supposed to or told to or promised to or whatever in in the first place. So to have recent events happen and fortunately for me have age on my side now and maturity on my side and perspective on my side, I can see from a completely different people group, but I can see the need to A, stand up and stand beside and B, the necessity to stand up and stand beside because a lot of my negative opinions or almost apathetic opinions, those don't help. To, to sit in your house and say, see, I told you this would never get better. See, this is, you're never going to change anything with that attitude. Uh, nationwide or in your own house, you're never going to change. So we talked about the systemic nature of the whole thing. It takes a, um, I don't know if you guys saw this, but social media for, for all of its pros and cons and they're equal in what they deliver oftentimes. But one really positive thing was recently the older gentleman, say in his 50s maybe, who was interviewed on the news and gave a great interview about why this was necessary and why people should be standing up and why people should be protesting for, for Black Lives Matter. But what really got me is later I saw a tweet from his son that said, that's my dad. Yes, That's a big deal. It is. Yeah. Uh, To be honest, I'm very proud of the fact that we are standing up and giving these types of education and speeches because I have children that I, I want them to see that we 
are not just people complaining about a problem. We're not just whining and, and playing victim. We're trying to be a part of the solution because I have my, my, um, my COO, my number two in command is a white woman. And when we've traveled on business, the treatment that we've gotten together, I, I've, I've, I have had three back surgeries. At one point, my back went out in an airport and I was laid out on the ground in pain. She stood there, tried to help me. Not one person, not one security guard, not one attendant. No one tried to help. They just walked right by us or sitting in first class on a plane. And now I own a multi-million dollar company. The lady who was serving us walked right by me, asked everybody else what they wanted, and then came to me last and said, well, we don't have anything else. You have to have what's left. You know, or me and, and, and Wendy having a conversation and a, a gentleman walking up to her asking, is this man bothering you? Like, what, what we're just having a conversation, you know, so uh, it's like a lot of the racism is not that they're putting me in jail or they're it's the microaggressions. It's the 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 gestures and the the discomfort that truly just contributes to the overall reminder that you're black in America and you better act right or we will. It's 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 a complete mind game. Now, I'm a grown man, but apply that same kind of pressure to our youth and see what they're feeling and what they're going through. That's just it's it's just ridiculous. Thank you both for sharing those really personal examples and experiences of that, because I think um, that's eye opening for a lot of people who don't deal with that. Um, let me ask you this. How has your Christian faith affected you in handling the racism that you have experienced? This is like a double-edged sword right here. And what I'm about to say, there are many people that say, put it in God's hands and God will handle it. But I tend to be a believer that um, we are God's hands. So if we are God's hands, we have to handle it. We have to act. We have to do something. So I would say that my my faith and my belief has driven me to a place that I cannot be silent. I have to say something. I have to do something because this may not benefit me in my lifetime, but it, it may benefit my children. It may benefit my grandchildren. It may benefit generations down the, down the road. So I feel like my faith has compelled me to not be passive, to not be quiet, and to very effectively and efficiently bring about the change that we need. The, yeah, the, and historically, uh, the best case scenario when civil rights, human rights, things come into play. The best case scenario is a lot of times the church has been silent. We don't want to be political. We're not taking a side. In the worst case scenario, historically, the church has been someone who pushed that wrong side of history and, and continued some of those behaviors and some of those systemic failures of conscience to normalize the thinking of whatever, you know, or to expel the thinking. Let's never talk about that. This is what the truth is. This is what you should believe. And then when you get back to that generational phenomena where kids grow up thinking, oh, well, I just always thought that. That's what they taught me in church. Or like Vernon's children, without seeing an example of someone stand up and say, this is wrong. This is how you make it right. 
without that, they may never have the, the context that something was wrong in the first place. And so growing up and being the brown guy in church, that representative of diversity is not a trophy that you want necessarily. So to get out of some of that stuff and take personal responsibility, if you're, if you're a Christian, you need to be reading the Bible to find out what your opinion is and how your life should be read. Mm-hmm. And what's taught there, love justice. What's taught there, love your neighbor. Those are things that you, that you live by. And sometimes we can have that ingrained in us, just like social media does, just like anything. We can have it ingrained in us. We think this is right mm-hmm. because I heard it from a good source. But if you're a Christian and you're Christ-like and you're following the Bible, then your opinion should sometimes be different than what popular opinion is. Mm-hmm. And, and human rights is not a political issue. It, it never was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if, if there was a movement or if we ever find ourselves in a movement where the church is being persecuted for whatever theoretical reason, you would want people standing up for that right, that amendment right that we have to practice your religion peacefully. And then you would hope that that call, you know, was the same as we hope to see now. Mm -hmm. You and I talked about that the other day, Jonathan. We said there is a difference between being political and a church shouldn't be political, but there's a difference between being political and seeming political. And the latter, um, when it comes to this issue of race, is is something that, well, we should be comfortable uh, talking about and being about because you said it, you said it quite well. It, it is not a political issue, the matter of skin color. Well, the other thing, you touched on this a little while ago. I, I feel like we have got to create safe zones where we can have the open conversation. So there are a lot of things that um, white people want to say or ask, but they don't want to come across offensive or or uninformed. So um, one of the things that we're looking at doing is setting up a potential platform, which could be uncomfortable conversations with a black man. Mm-hmm. I heard it on the radio the other day. I thought it was a, a great idea. You know, just safe zones where you can ask these questions, you can get clarification. Like we had a conversation the other day where um, a white person said to me, well, why do you guys keep saying black this and black that? And and why is everything black? And I said, well, if you look at our history, you guys have always said, you're black, you're black, you're this, you can't do this because you're black. So we have to take that thing that we're being identified as and make it prideful, make it positive. So we're trying to take what we are and come together, depend on one another, lean on one another, because for years it seemed like we had no one else to lean on, no support, no anything. So we talk about buy black. We talk about um, circulating the black dollar within black circles because it's all we have. And to that same point, when you're talking about affecting politics, a lot of those decisions are based on money. Who's contributing to whose campaign? Who's supporting whose campaign? Well, if we don't have anything to give and we're already a small minority, we don't have the impact on elections that we need to have. So look at all the systems and the understanding of all the systems working together that are keeping us in a place of deficit and lack. 
You talked about starting those conversations and just having them in that powerful way. Uh, A week ago, Vernon, you stood before Stafford County's Board of Supervisors and you asked the supervisors to help identify someone in each of their districts to be a member of a multicultural commission. You're also going to lead that conversation, as I understand, in the city of Fredericksburg as well. Would you tell us more about your thoughts about this commission and your hopes that you have for it for the future? So the commission is something that I think multicultural commission that represents all of the minority populations that we have and bringing their concerns and their issues to the table. Um, I believe that what the commission will be able to do is work with community members that have issues, whether it's in the sheriff's department, whether it's in the school system, whether it's with um, government administration, bring those issues to this body and then the body can look into it to see what's going on. And then I believe that there's a There will be a concerted effort by all involved because a civilian board is not held in a way where there's a level of prevention of secret. For example, the board of supervisors, what they say in closed chambers cannot come out. It's supposed to be private. Well, having a civilian board that looks into this, let's say the the school district is hiding something and we're investigating or looking into this thing and they don't cooperate. Well, we can go straight to the press and say, look, we're trying to look into this. They're blocking us, specifically this person. So when it's time to elect new leaders, or it's time to figure out who should not be there, oh, we know because they did not work with the commission in order to relieve or or fix or address the problems. So we believe that this, the way or what I'm pushing for and what I'm asking for is that um, we have uh, seven uh, districts. I'm asking that we have um, one representative for each of those districts, four members at large, one member from the Board of Supervisors, one member from the uh, school board, one member from the Sheriff's Department, and then that become the commission. And that collectively, the the members from each of those um, areas give a level of expertise into how things work in the school district, how things work in the, in the, in the Sheriff's Department, how things work uh, within those areas. And then the board brings all of their concerns on how the members of that com- commission bring all those things to to the commission on discrepancies or or wrongs or or issues you know why is it that in the school districts for the exact same offense the punishments are different depending on your nationality that that shouldn't be but it is um why is it that uh the representation of minorities within the police force uh do not show the de- demographic of our population you know w- what is preventing that what are we doing about getting more minority teachers in the school system so that kids in the school system have someone that looks like them that they can relate to, someone that they can talk to. There are all these concerns that I feel the commission could look into and then make recommendations on policy, make recommendations on on how business is done so that we can start bringing about the change that we're trying to achieve. And do it in a way that there is some really powerful, transparent conversations. It it has to be done transparently. And that's why I think that this, this body will be powerful in facilitating change, working with those people in power, the board of supervisors, the sheriff in his department and the school board and, and, and their staff. 
Yeah, the conversation is A, all that's asked for, and B, a transparent conversation is how you fix things. And I don't know how we kind of got in an age of the cliche, you don't talk about race, you don't talk about politics, you don't talk about religion. But no problem has ever been fixed without talking about those talking about issues. the issues. Mm -hmm. It's against the laws of nature. If you leave something to be, it's not going to fix itself. It's going to get worse. And so we've got we've been in hundreds of years of it getting worse. And so the only way that you can fix it is to come together and have that have that conversation where you might sound ignorant and you might sound a little racist to ask a question. But if you don't know the answer, you can't better yourself. And if you can't better yourself, you can't change anything. One of the great things that has happened, like you said, social media has good and bad. I've gotten DMs from white people and and what the, it'll, it'll start off something like, I'm following your thread. I don't understand. Can I ask you a question? You know, and I get I get a lot of these or or they'll say, I hear your argument, but I've also heard this argument. Do you mind helping me, you know, find the middle ground on this? So I've been getting a lot of these. And one of the first things that I'm telling everybody is go watch the documentary 13th. If you watch the documentary 13th, you will understand what we mean by systemic racism. That documentary is it should be it should be a prerequisite to any conversation that we have going forward because so many people want to say well i'm not prejudiced well i'm i'm not like that or it's not me but if you don't understand the history you're doomed to repeat it for our listeners some practical things that you're doing to make sure that com commission uh, is enacted. Uh, I believe June 16th, you're going to speak about that or that's going to go to vote here in Stafford County. Is that? So I know that it's been added to the agenda. I can't say whether they will approve it, but it is my hope that they will approve it. I do believe I've been working with the leaders in the county. Um, you know, we've had back and forth conversation on, you know, language and, and, and how we can get this thing done. I believe that our leadership see the benefit in having this body, and I believe they're going to vote it in the place um, on June 16th. And that's that's my hope, kind of for personal reasons, too. I really need to get back to work. I, I have a job that I've been neglecting a little bit. So I, I thank my staff this week for doing so much. But what we're trying to do is work on the charter, work on the guidelines and, and everything so that when they get it up and established, we're, we're, we're going to set them up for success. So the bylaws, the charter and things like that, um, we're looking to some of our neighboring counties that have some of these bodies already. There's a human rights council. There's a civilian review committee. All of them kind of have the same type of function. Um, so we're trying to not recreate the wheel, pull from the best of breed out there or what everyone's doing that is successful and create a charter that's going to be effective for here in Stafford. And yes, I will be working with Fredericksburg leadership as well. They've reached out and, and we are excited to facilitate the same type of process that we've done here, bringing protesters and leaders together, listening, talking, and implementing change that we believe will be lasting going forward. I do believe that this this time is different. There's There's something special about this time. I did tell a story earlier about my youthful ignorance leading me to not be involved, not vote. That puts you on the bench. And it also, while it doesn't make you responsible for anything, it makes you negligent of whatever comes from that. So in my maturity, just as we talked about a little bit earlier, if, if you want to be, if you're a Christian, you, you can't live your life based on popular opinion. 
vote, 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 but vote your conscience. Read, do the work, figure out why you're voting something, figure out what it is that you believe in and don't vote based on popular opinion and don't vote based on the sticker and the Instagram post, but vote based on, you know, what's in your head, what you want to see happen and how that vote can change something. Absolutely. Speaking for myself personally, uh, speaking as a Christian man who is white and pastors a primarily white uh, community of faith, uh, I know that we want to do all that we can to lift up and support the black community uh, in this moment going forward. Do you have any thoughts on what that looks like to stand with the black community and walk with them in this moment and into the future? As we, as we pray, it is a future that is marked with change. So if I go back to that that documentary, if white people will go and look at the documentary and see what it is we are truly complaining about, I think understanding will put you in a place of compassion and a place of reception. Um, so educate yourselves on the history and what's what's been happening uh, systemically for, for hundreds of years. And then after that, we need to look at how, what laws we're passing and what we're voting for, just as Jonathan said. Within that documentary, it talks about how there are organizations out there writing the laws for the legislators and handing it to them to meet their corporate responsibilities. And that from, from I think it was called ALEC. When you look at what they're doing, I don't even understand how it happened. And it's so bad that one of the legislators forgot to change the heading on it. So when he turned it in, it said Alec right on it. Alec wrote the legislation to benefit one of their corporate sponsors. And it's happening. And it's happening so far above black people's reach that we can't really do anything about it. That's why we need our white counterparts. That's why we need people at every level to start looking at how policy is being created, who's creating it, and who's benefiting from it, and then start challenging those those things. I think you said it, stand up and walk. That's how you make your presence known, make your support known, listen to other people's experience and try to come to terms with how it contrasts from your own. In our um, Extraordinary young, young Minds program, which Vernon alluded to, our EYM program, with elementary school students, we have an exercise with a multicolored Jenga tower. And each color represents something that's happened to someone. Always negative. It, it represents something that's negative. And when something negative happens to you, and we go over different options, we pull one of those blocks out. And what happens when you pull enough of the blocks out? the whole tower falls. Everybody knows how Jenga works. So then we talk with the students about what is the opposite of what each colored block represented? What's the opposite of that? What's the opposite of treating somebody poorly for no reason? And they'll always impress me and say, treating someone kind for no reason. Well, great. If we can do the opposite, then instead of taking the brick out, we're putting the brick back in. And what does that make? It makes a strong tower. And that's one of the things where if you're wondering what should I be doing, I think the only answer is not nothing. Do something. Put the brick back in. A community that is strong, will, it's contagious. It will affect the next community yep. and it will affect the next community. And one at a time is the only way you change anything. Well, I want to thank you both. I want to thank you personally, Vernon, for your leadership, 
in this moment. Thank you for being a leader to me as well. And I want to thank you both as Christian men. You have encouraged me and I pray you encourage others as well to see problems that exist for black men and women uh, who have been hurt by racism and to speak up. You have encouraged us, inspired us to speak up, do what's right, love justice, do mercy, walk humbly with God. So thank you. Thank you both very much for being willing to sit down with us and, and share your thoughts. Thank you. Thank you. 